I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? The venture capital community is not about making businesses. And it's fundamentally just a scam. The entire concept of success is based on how much money did you raise? Yes. How fast did you spend it? And did you get out before everything collapsed? Like, it's just, it's the norm. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, and this week we're bringing you hot takes. The return to work movement? Nonsense. Venture capital? Total scam. AI? It will not solve climate change, but it might solve the culture wars. What are you talking about? I hear you say. Well, you're going to get all of these takes and more from this week's guest, David Barrett. He's the founder of Expensify, a company that makes expenses software for businesses. And you may recall that we had David on four years ago because Expensify was a remote company before it was cool. And we had him on to talk about that and a bunch of other stuff. And since then, a whole bunch has happened. So he took the company public. Yay. But its stock has plunged more than 95% from its high. Not so. Yay. So we talk about that, the deep problems with the venture capital model, why despite the struggles he still prefers being a public company, why forcing people back to the office, uh, the companies that are doing that, they're just lazy. And loads of other stuff. So it's a fun conversation that will give you some things to think about um, because you know much of what David says really runs counter to conventional wisdom out here in Techland, certainly. And just one more note before we get started. You may recall that about three years ago, almost to the day, we had on this program a guy called Delian Asparov. And he's with Founders Fund, but he's also also the founder of a company called Varda. And he had this insane idea to make space factories. You know, these would be fired up on on rockets out into orbit and then make novel drugs while, you know, circling the planet in zero gravity that otherwise could not be made on Earth. Anyhow, one of those just really off-the-wall ideas. But just this past week, Varda's first space factory touched back down to Earth. So quite a big deal. Not clear yet how the actual manufacturing went. As of recording, they were still analyzing it, but they did manage to actually put a space factory into orbit. So 
there's that. Anyhow, I will put a link to that episode in the show notes in case you had seen the, the news and want to hear the story before the story. It'll be there for you to check out. But now, let's get to today's show and my conversation with David Barrett of Expensify. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show. It has uh, it's been many moons, and a lot has happened <laughs> since you were last here. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty exciting four years. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've written a few stories about the kind of work from anywhere versus back to the office thing. There seems to be a real kind of low key civil war still going on mm. around what that looks like and should look like. You have people like. Sam Altman, who said, you know, that work from anywhere thing was a complete disaster, a failed experiment. We're never doing that again. And obviously, <laughs> the numbers would seem to indicate otherwise. So I'd love to get your perspective. You could just briefly explain kind of what you tried to do and how it went and where you think we are now. So Expensify has been kind of a work remote company for a long time and yeah. pre-pandemic as well. And I think that for our journey there started with we started in San Francisco, everyone worked out of the same office, very sort of tight-knit sort of thing. And then we opened an office in Michigan, which was three time zones away. And even then, it just forced us to split all of our processes to be asynchronous. So you couldn't always count on the person being like available, like awake and sitting next to you at all times. And that had to ripple through all of our processes. And then I moved to Portland and I basically said to the company, I'm like, hey, I moved to Portland. Anyone who wants to come with me is welcome. About a third of the company moved to Portland since now we had three offices. And then we added uh, an office in uh, the UK and then one in Melbourne. And then, then over, then it just kind of spiraled from there. And now we just have people all over the world. And so the sun never sets in the expense by empire because there's always someone awake. There's always something cool happening. But it's a big change. Uh, and I would say people focus a lot on the downsides and yeah. that there's not someone there to basically like always answer your question in real time. And because of that, it means you have to hold yourself to a much higher communication standard. You have to say something that stands on its own that you can't be expected to explain two seconds later if the person reading it isn't, you know, yeah. reading at the same time you're awake, whatever it is. So I think it's required all of us to kind of mature our communications and our sort of thinking to sort of uh, say something and get a good answer out of them while you're asleep sort of thing. So people are getting much better at email writing. Because I was, you know, everybody's had that experience where you get an email and you're like, oh, oh, is that person mad? Are they angry? Are they joking? That's a great point. And so there's like a few things. One, so we don't do any email. We're entirely a, a Slack organization. And so it's, it's all chat all the time. Yeah, you need to have those good relationships where you can build a trusted sort of, so you can read it in the right tone and give someone the benefit of the doubt. The basic, it's like, I don't, I don't think this guy's an asshole. I mean, I, I hung out with him a lot the other day. He's cool. That it could be interpreted a couple different ways. I think it's probably fine. But I would say the upside, and I think what kind of gets lost in all of this, is that you can recruit on a global basis. I think it's just wild. The idea that basically the best people in the world happen to be within a 30-minute commute of where you are, like it doesn't matter what city you're in. Most of the world is not in that city. And so I think the idea of limiting your recruiting pool to such a tiny pinprick on the globe, I think is incredibly weird. And so I just think, of course, with real-time communications and all of this, you should be pulling from a global employee base. And so you just got to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, that's not because telecommunications is failed forever. It just means you're not very good at it. Right. And so can you talk about the lounge and what you tried to do there and what 
that experiment taught you? So um, I mentioned we started the company in San Francisco. One of our offices is there. It's on the 16th floor, 88 Kearney, magnificent, beautiful office. But actually, we got to a point where it was just overflowing. And so we're like, do we need to get a bigger office? But then we just couldn't find anything good. And so we decided at that point, like, well, because we're looking at offices far away. And we're like, if we're going to be in an office far away, we might as well just look at a different city. And so that's when a fraction of the company moved up to Portland. So it kind of just fractured the company at that point, physically, if you will. So also, when it comes to uh, working remote, we pay a global wage, meaning that everyone is paid according to San Francisco standards, no matter where you live. Oh, wow. And so you can live very comfortably in San Francisco, or you can just ball out of control anywhere else in the world. Um, And so once it became an option to have a San Francisco wage, basically anywhere, then people started to really ask themselves, like, is San Francisco truly the right city for me? Or is this the place I I thought I had to be? And I think over time, we've learned that people don't really want to live in San Francisco. They want to say they've lived in San Francisco. It's a place (laughs) that they want to experience for a point in their life and then move on. And we just found it harder and harder to keep people in any office because once they could go literally anywhere in the world, everything's held to a global standard. And it doesn't matter how how good your office is. It's just not better than the rest of the world. Right. And so the lounge experiment was basically taking that to the absolute extreme. The pandemic happened post your move to Portland, correct? Oh, no. Uh, we moved to Portland years before the pandemic. And so all, all of right. this happened basically before the pandemic. Right. And then the pandemic kind of, I mean, I guess in a way, the way you're describing your company, the way it's set up, it didn't dramatically change how you worked. But I guess the one thing it did change was that everybody else seemed to get on the same train, at least for a while of like, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, like this makes no sense. Like, why am I, in my case, why am I getting on BART doing like an hour and a half round trip to be in an office to then have to rush back to pick up my kids when I can do the same work 90% of the time from my kitchen table? Exactly. And I think like, like as a company, because you mentioned um, in order to work well remotely, you have to have a good relationship and the relationship is typically built in person. So we take the whole company like overseas once or twice a year. Um, and so we meet up basically like last year, we met up in, uh, um, in Bali, for example, for, uh, for like a month with families and kids. Wow. And so basically we, and we do this again and again, like all over the world. And so we're building strong relationships in person. But if you want to bring your whole company someplace around the world, that clearly whatever's in your office can't be important. Otherwise, you just couldn't function for that month. Yeah. And so everyone is a hardened road warrior that can work out of cafes and airports on planes, you know, wherever it might be. And productivity continues on a 24-7 basis, no matter where we happen to be. And so I think that's about, in order to maintain that kind of global culture, you have to dissociate yourself from time zones. You have to dissociate yourself from real-time communications, as well as from the the comfort of home or office or whatever it is. And so anyone who you see is like, I got my huge ass monitors and I can't function without them. I'm like, (laughs) sorry, you are fucking changed your desk forever until I guess Vision Pro comes out. And now it's like, now you got giant monitors everywhere. (laughs) So you create this kind of lounge space. What was it and what was the thinking behind it? So we had this super sick office in San Francisco and we just couldn't keep people into it because People just kept moving away, not yeah. leaving the company. They just like left San Francisco. And even then, once it's like two thirds of the company is not in an office, the people who are in a city with an office, like, why do I need to go to the office? Like I can just, everyone else works from home. I work from a cafe. And so we're like, okay, should we keep these offices? Like, what's the point if no one wants to go? 
I still do think the office is the best place to work with certain conditions. Right. And I think those conditions would have to be one, it has to have really great coffee, not like shitty coffee, not coffee that you picked up across the street. <laughs> it should have like, you know, really nice, uh, you know, coffee. Two, it should have great cocktails because, you know, in practice where we like to work, we're drinking cocktails. That's just like what people actually do. Yeah. Whether or not you're supposed to or not, it's just that's actually the reality of things. And three, you should be surrounded by strangers, people that you work next to, but not with. Um, again, it just creates a different kind of vibe. It's like, how else do you, if you, if you have an incredibly high employee retention like we do, like and I think most of our employees have been over here over six years, something like that. Like you're just not meeting a lot of new people at the office. Yeah. You're going to meet new people in your life. You got to go someplace. And so I think that's what the cafe culture is just, it's so good because you're out in the world, you're getting new ideas, you're collaborating, you're meeting people. And so we thought, well, if this, crappy cafe in Hanoi can somehow be an amazing work environment for our employees, our multi-million dollar office should be okay. Um, and so we decided to kind of like really test this theory. We outfitted our office with a incredibly amazing um, espresso bar, cocktail bar. And so basically you go to the 16th floor, you open up and it's this, this world-class basically like, you know, incredible like Tokyo style sort of like high altitude cocktail bar. Right. But it's optimized for work environment. It's a cocktail bar where you can pull out your laptop anywhere. You can do a call from the from the bar, it's fine. And so it's an incredibly unique environment. In fact, I would say the lounge is interesting. There's there's nothing else like it except for early 2000s. Do you ever know like David Weekly and the like, super happy dev house and the kind of the, the whole hacker dojo culture and things are back there? No. I mean, it all rings a bell, but no, not personally. Yeah, it's like these are old times. And so basically like when you could still be the first person to do something online, there's this infectious vibe of just collaboration and it wasn't uh, the money was always there, but it was just about doing something cool. Uh, that all got lost along the way somewhere. And so I think that the lounge became an environment. So we decided, Oh, uh, in order to have that third criteria, we had to open it up the public. So we just went to all of our users and was like, Hey, anyone with an expense by like, you know, account can come work out of our lounge, unlimited co uh, cocktails, coffee, Wi-Fi view, sick environment, run friends. So needless to say, immediately like a line out the door. And it just, it was such a positive and interesting work environment. It was so mm -hmm. unique. It reminds me of like the early days of the internet, which are, uh, which were great. However, our employees still didn't go. It's like they did sometimes, like every yeah. once in a while they'd show up, but they're like, yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's definitely the best office in the world, yeah. bar none. There's like, we did a champagne toast, a champagne, we'd shaver a champagne bottle every night at sunset and just walk around giving toasts. Um, it was like, it was the most amazing environment you could possibly work in. And even then people still preferred the kitchen table most of the time. Yep. And it just came down to it. It's like, okay, well, you know, we tried, <laughs> we, we really tried to create an environment to pull everyone in. And it was an amazing environment for users. And it was, it, I, I loved being there when I was in town and so forth, but fundamentally it was about, can we create an environment that's going to, that our employees will voluntarily choose every day? And the answer was no. So you closed it. Because I mean, it, it was an experiment to answer that question and we answered it. <laughs> and so the question is, is because, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the HR world at big tech companies who, you know, in quiet conversations be like, well, you know, some of them, it depends on what their stance is, like kind of what they're going into it. But they're like, you know, there's actually like the data shows that like being in the office does not increase productivity. But then you have your CEO who reads in the tech press that, you know, rival CEO is ordering his people back into the office. And therefore he's like, what's our back to office plan? And 
there's this real like tension that continues and we see it in San Francisco with like record vacancy rates downtown and just kind of it feels ghost towny and you're kind of like how's this all going to work and kind of I just think it's really interesting when you have people like Sam Altman same thing it was just like this was a disaster glad we got that out of our system now everybody get back to work which seems to be a lot of the attitudes of the big CEOs out here well i mean i think it really comes down to management technique and i would say in order to work remotely you have to be a more mature group of people that can yeah. live without your boss literally just looking at you to say like did you come into the office today is basically and it sounds so dumb but in practice that kind of like physical peer pressure is a big part of it and so you have to create a higher trust environment that is like i believe my people are working even though i can't actually physically observe them and that's that can be scary and i and i get it yeah. like we deal with that too like we it's like, what does this person do? I haven't seen them in a long time. And is that because they're just focused or because they're doing nothing, especially for roles that aren't highly quantifiable? It's just like, did it take 10 hours of creative work to do that or zero hours? And it's like, it's not hard to know. It requires a high degree of communication skill, trust uh, in your people, trust in each other, um, uh, maturity of relationships. And so it's, it's a hard thing to do. I'm not saying it comes easily. I'm just saying it's better. Do you think it, that this kind of charge back to the office is really about just when you're talking about, especially managing thousands and thousands of people, this is just easier, in other words, and therefore that's why we're doing it. Yeah, I think it's easier, it's lazier. And I think we're, we're seeing like an oscillation. Clearly given vacancy rates, you know, people have not gone back to the offices. And so it's like, they maybe overcorrected into the, uh, into the pandemic, and now we're basically like undercorrecting, and we're gonna keep going back. I mean, I think anyone who's like, you know, like my kid, is she gonna work in an office with a cubicle? Like the cubicles are gone. Even offices are there, but like no one has cubicles before. But we couldn't imagine life without them before. Now it's like, oh, that's an open plan and office sort of thing, or it's like, yeah, we have an office and you come in three times a week. So it's I think we're gradually going to find a baseline. And again, I actually do think the office, if you are in the same place as someone, having an environment created for your every need, yeah. I mean, like having yeah. a whiteboard, having good Wi-Fi, all this stuff, that's that that is better but you have to make an office that actually does those things. And so I think we're going to figure it out over time. And I'm curious, how are you feeling about the world generally <laughs> in 2024? <laughs> because I think since we spoke, you went public and it was yep. like November, 2021, like the absolute peak. And I remember writing giant pieces about crypto and trillions of dollars and oh my God, everything. And this is like right in the midst of the pandemic and when everybody was flush with money. And then it's been a rough two years, especially for SaaS companies, especially for fintech companies. Oh, yeah. What has that roller coaster been like? It's been pretty exciting, pretty stressful. And so, so starting this macro, I would say like, yeah, it's crazy. The world is nuts right now. It's just amazing how many simultaneous disasters are happening. Um, any one of which would be basically like world changing, but there's like multiple. And it, that we could talk about like, you know, uh, wars, climate disasters. We could talk about, you know, culture clashes. And it's like and er on everywhere in the spectrum, it's just chaos. And so like, that's great. And on top of like, you know, huge tech disruptions um, with like, you know, the still work from home thing. How does that sort of trickle through? And we got like the, Vision Pro, like, you know, challenging a bunch of stuff, which it's like, I think it's largely bullshit, but like, whatever. And so I think that, yes, yeah, it's been, it's been very dynamic. And I think that dynamicism like this doesn't create, like, I think the markets prefer stability and we just don't have that. And so I think that everyone is 
sloshing money around trying to find some safe hardware, and there is none. Every sector is basically at risk. Except for AI, which is the the one place where people are spending like drunken sailors right now. Yeah, but now it's now it's a rational exuberance is already set in there. And AI is a whole different thing. And so, yes, there's a million different things. And so I'd say, yeah, anxious for the state of the world and a bunch of different things independent of the company itself. I think it's interesting being a newly um, sort of public CEO, seeing how the markets sort of function from the inside and how just chaotic it is. And our business, like we have a super strong business. We're stable customers, you know, all of our metrics are, you know, pretty stable. And I'd say, yeah, we're subject to the same macro influences as everyone else. And it's like, our business does better when the world's on fire and the world's on fire. Yeah. So like, no, that's like great. But it's interesting just seeing how punishing the markets can be and how dissociated sort of share price is with just the actual results. Like I saw like bill.com announced earnings the day. They're like, um, they beat their earnings. Uh, sorry, they beat the uh, market consensus. They raised guidance. Stock pops 16%. Next day, it drops 27%. It's just like, what the fuck is that? Like, what? <laughs> um, and, uh, and like, I mean, I know Renee. Renee's an amazing CEO. His yeah. business is an incredible business. They do everything absolutely by the book. They have followed the playbook to a T. They're everything a, a public investor should ever want. And it's like, but the market still can't make up their minds. And so I think it's been really tough seeing it. So it's like, wow, so little of our share price has anything whatsoever to do with us. But I think our our company is very... We're a very long-term focused company. We focus on sort of the fundamental economics of things. Our business itself is fine. Um, our customers are suffering. And when our customers suffer, we suffer. Uh, but the biz- our business overall is a generally a, like a very solid one, stable one. And I think that we viewed it as, and not that we planned this out, uh, but early on, we recognized you know, before the pandemic and so forth. It's like, yeah, we kind of took our business to like the top of a local maximum. Like right. uh, the way we view it is uh, the market's enormous. Almost no one in the world uses anything like us. Like. 0.1% of the market uses any sort of sense management. And so we want to go after the other 99%. And that requires retooling for like a bigger a bigger play. And so we started this fundamental rewrite exercise before the pandemic. It's taken years, taken longer than I wanted to, but it's fucking great. And I'm so glad that we're doing it right now while the world's in chaos, because it's basically it's like, what else are you going to do with this time? Good results, bad results, doesn't actually matter. You're fucked either way. And so instead, just invest in the future. And so I think that's been our attitude. And I think our employees really rallied around that. So it's been crazy. It's like the world's on fire. Our company's cool. We're all working hard and focused on the future and just kind of like keeping our heads down. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Would you do it again? Because I think you listed at 27 and now it's at like two or your shares are at two or whatever. It's like 90 plus percent drop. That's just yeah. brutal. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. And I know that like, you know, if you, when you list, when things are frothy, you can raise more money, which is helpful. But if you had to do it again, would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. And the reason is, so first people go public for different reasons. Yeah. So we didn't raise any money or really any, we did the absolute minimum that you basically legally can sort of thing because we're a profitable company. Like we make our own money. We don't need to raise money. In fact, we did a bunch of share buybacks because we're like, oh, the share price is lame. So like, let's just, we got money, let's spend it on buying back. And so, no, I think going public for me or for the company was really about, you know, we had we had to. We had to return money to our shareholders. And how else do yeah. you do that? If you're a profitable company that's not raising any more money, like how do you how do your investors ever get out? And so we just we work for our shareholders. And so we basically said, like, this is the only option is to go public. And so we did it at a time, as you mentioned, the absolute peak of the market, like with the benefit of hindsight, it was the perfect possible time for us to go public. Had we not gone public, our investors would be freaking out because they'd be like, how do I ever get liquidity now? And like, I don't know. Right. Because the window has been slammed shut for two years, basically. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And so I would say for a long-term shareholder, I still think, I believe that we're going to get everything back and more. And so it's like, if you take, if you believe in the long-term opportunity and vision, this is all just a distraction. But like the LPs are like, look, I have a time horizon. I need to give the money back. It's not mine. And so whether or not I would like to hold for a long time, but I can't, it's not my money. And so anyway, if going public was just a necessity that we had to do for our shareholders, and that was the best possible time to do it. So, you know, I have no regrets. What did you found Expensify? Let's call it like 2008. 2008. Um, another just great time for the world. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> As we started, I like to say, like, in the sort of the, uh, the bottom of the greatest depression since the Great Depression sort of thing. Right. So 2008, you go public in 2021. And that is kind of like, you know, I have... We have founders on this show week in, week out, who are kind of often very at the very beginning of that journey of the kind of having a really interesting idea, raised a bunch of money. Now we're trying to kind of like bring it to the world, bring their vision to fruition, et cetera, reaching that next level, taking a company public. You mentioned earlier around like just you were surprised by like the chaos of how markets work, et cetera. Is that the thing that surprised you most? Or what in terms of that? arc, starting, building, going public, and then you're there, you're a public company CEO. What is the thing that you found most surprising and or challenging? I mean, so like, it could boil down like the entire journey and what's the most biggest surprise. There's probably a lot of surprises along the way. I would say one, how just the, their venture capital community is not about making businesses. And it's fundamentally just a scam, the entire thing. Say more. I just think like the um, everything about it is optimized for, okay, imagine you went to a hot dog salesman and you're like, yes. look, I've got a problem and I love your advice. Um, and they're going to be like, hmm, I've thought about it. For your unique needs, you should buy more hot dogs. Um, <laughs> because like, that's what it is. But, like, and so like, what does a venture capitalist do? They sell someone else's money and they take a cut. Um, yes. And so ev- the answer to every single problem is, you know what? You should raise more money for me and spend it 
as fast as possible. Right. Generally with my friends. And so I'd say, I think that no part of the VC industry is about making a business that actually is a like cares about unit economics e- efficiency is like efficiency is the anathema to the VC industry. Uh, because wh- why would I want to have an efficient business? That means you raise less money. And so everything about it, I think, is about propping up these utterly like even the the, the entire idea of success in Silicon Valley, like the, the idea that the serial entrepreneur, the only other time we say serial is serial killer. It's a it's just a fucked up notion that it's basically like the idea of creating a business that you just stay with is just like so foreign. They're like it was like yeah you know uh, I started this this company because uh, when I was a kid I really care about kittens and so social networks for yeah. kittens is like they're really near and dear to my heart. It's a very important thing. Um, I raised a team no not a team a family uh, with these close partners. Uh, my customers are just yes. I'm so loyal to them. I did this. I built it and then I sold it. And now I'm working on this new thing, this green, green, green tech, which is very important to me and my family. It's just like, how do you make seven companies in a row and then leave them all? Like, how could you fuck up seven times in a row that way? And so I think the uh, the entire concept of success is based on how much money did you raise? Yes. How fast did you spend it? And did you get out before everything collapsed? Like, it's just, a, it's the norm. They're like, oh, I sold my company. Oh yeah, the acquirer completely fucked it up. You know, I was talking to Scott Cook at Intuit um, a while ago, and he's like, yeah, the, I think it's just like of the 37 acquisitions we've made, only two have actually performed to our targets. And we're like, yeah, and like, it was like, two's pretty good. And so I don't know, I just think everything's this weird shell game about basically taking money out of institutional investors, putting them in the pockets of LPs or uh, sort of like uh, people who are running the firms, the partners and so forth, partnering with basically CEOs getting them flush with cash. And then basically everyone sells and then the employees are just stuck in some other company with underwater options that are worthless. And just everyone's confused because all the terms are secretive. And then they just rinse and repeat. You do that enough, everything's secret. You can get by for decades, never successfully make a company that actually anyone ever uses, never make an investment that actually like returned anything positive, but you make a lot of money along the way and you just have a good time. Um, and I think that's the VC industry overall. You're speaking like a man who doesn't think he'll be trying to raise money from VCs ever again. I mean, I don't know. I hope not. But I'd say, let me tell the, the counter argument. Yeah. If you're doing a deal with the devil, just that's fine. Just know it's the devil. And I think that actually, I think a good VC, they know all this. And they're like, yeah, but that's my job. And you know what? Some good stuff does come out of it. Sure. Most of it, because it's a numbers game. Most of these companies are bullshit. I get it, but some of them aren't. And that's what drives progress. Sure, I would like to always invest in the most impactful company possible. Who wouldn't? But no one can do that. You have to invest in everything else. And that's the business model. And I believe it's a net positive for society. And yeah, I make a lot of money along the way. And sure, a lot of of people get ground up in the mix. And that's why it's tough being an entrepreneur. It is funny, especially just as kind of like living out here, especially for people who don't live here. There's this there's this mythology about Silicon Valley and kind of, you know, the secretary who got the options in the company and now lives in a mansion and never has to work again and blah, 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 blah. But much more often is, you know, I have friends who have hopped from three to four to five different companies, hoping that that company, that that next company is the company that's going to make them rich. And what often ends up happening is they just work their ass off, 
at some point realize the company they're working for is going nowhere or it's just not fun. And then they hop to the next lily pad and it's rinse, repeat. And you just have all of these people chasing this dream that for most people is not reachable. Yeah. And I think that's, that's my frustration actually is it feels that's, that's why I say it's a scam is because it's selling a dream. And then people are not taking steps to achieve that dream in the sense that the best practices of Silicon Valley are fucking over your employees and then lying to them about it. And like, that's just built into everything. It's like basically when you're getting a term sheet or whatever it is, it's all about bribing the founders to take these terms, which are fundamentally anti-company, but they wrap it up in a bunch of nuance and language and so forth. But like, it's not, then coincidentally, that just keeps happening again and again. Um, and so it's like, that's not some coincidence. It's, it's, that's the strategy, because I think that's what maximizes the short-term returns. And it's what makes everyone the most money. I like investors that are a bit more honest about yeah. their motives. And I'm okay with that. And basically it's like, you get it. I get it. I need the money. I'm going to spend it. You're going to try to fuck me. I'm going to protect myself, whatever. That's why we got lawyers. It's good. It's just the people who pretend that there's some higher purpose to it. I think that's where the scam comes in. A lot of thought leadership floating around. <laughs> a lot of thought leadership. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of very deep thinking uh, VCs who kind of write really chin stroking posts about company culture, et cetera. Well, so let me talk about going public though. Being public, completely different. The investors are just a completely different caliber of people. How do you mean? They're just smarter. They ask the right questions. They mm -hmm. care about fundamental economics. They care about market size. They care about the longevity of your business. They're held to a higher standard just because it's not like, it's, an, it's a often like regulated industry. There's the SEC involved. It's just everything is just a more mature, better environment. Like public investors are great. I love talking to public investors because they, like they get it. They they get right. it and they want you to succeed. They're not like, look, I need to invest in you just that, you know, I get this target, whatever it is. It's like, no, I want your business to succeed. I invest in you because I believe in you. Tell me, like, help me believe. And that's great. Even with something I would say one surprise, SEC, great. Everyone's so afraid of the SEC. Guys are super pro. They're like, look, I don't really care. I have these rules. I want you to succeed as well. We can work together on this. They've been great. And so I don't know, even like people are like, oh, SOX compliance and all this stuff. SOX is basically like 173 obvious rules. Every one of them is like, yeah, you should definitely do this. But like doing 173 of them reliably all the time, like, yeah, you should brush your teeth every day. Do you brush your teeth every single day in an audited way? Well, no, but it's not like it's brushing your teeth hard. It's just doing it to the standard yeah. is hard. And so I don't know, being a public company, I love it. It's like, it's you're surrounded by mature people who want the best for you and who are trying to actually make the world a better place. It's funny you say that because I, um, I was listening to some podcast from um, where Bill Gurley was talking. For those who don't know, he's a very well-known investor out here from Benchmark many years, et cetera. You probably know him from your Uber days, I would guess, maybe. No? Well, I never was with Uber. I mean, I, I, I Travis, I saw, I, you and Travis, Travis started Uber. Sorry. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I mean... You know, I, I think I've met him. I've pitched right. every VC in the Valley, so I've, yeah. I, I've been a long time. So he was saying he started out as a stock analyst on Wall Street. Mm. And he was saying, you know, the average financial literacy of like your your typical Silicon Valley venture capitalist is like a one out of 10. Oh. And he said, what? you know, if yeah. you're like a financial analyst, you have to be eight or nine out of 10. Like you have to really know your stuff, which I think is just interesting to that point you're making around kind of this, it's all just this like 
dream machine that's like yes yeah. you're not existing in the real world and and then it sounds like your experience has been you're kind of you enter the public markets you have to show up every quarter talk about what your business is doing dollars and cents black and white it just feels like it sounds like it's just a completely different reality yeah and i think i think the people involved are just again more professional more mature um and have better and have better motivations now again it's still chaos in the sense that the markets are still priced in a crazy way but the world itself is chaos and so i think it's even like a well-structured system is going to produce unusual results when it's fed with such you know unusual inputs last thing on the on the employee culture side of things I was just, I'm doing something on Snapchat this week and, you know, their shares are down 40% and all of the stuff. And it's like for for them, it's a real problem. And it's a real problem for virtually any company where a lot of your comp is based on shares. It's like taking Mm. a gigantic pay cut. Yeah. And given what's happened to your shares, do you, how do you navigate that? Or is that part of how you kind of keep people around? I mean, it sucks. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, clearly, if um, you know people see their stock compensation go down like ninety five percent in value, like that's a problem, all right. But I think that also comes down to being a, a is part of a startup. And I still like what is a startup? I think we're a public company, but I think we're a startup because I fully believe our best days are ahead of us. You go from like wealth creation and wealth like preservation. No, we're still very much in the creation mindset, which sounds cliche and all that, but like whatever, take it for what it's worth. And so I would say. Given that, I think it's about saying, it's like, we're going to make your life today awesome. So like, you're going to have great income so you can like live a good life. You can travel, you know, we take our employees because one of the, I mentioned, we take our company overseas a couple of times a year. So we have everyone in our company travels all over the world and we provide, we throw like the sickest parties they've ever had in their life. Um, And we take, like, we rent out the, you know, the four seasons of Bora Bora for the company for a week or something like this. And so everyone has just such a good baseline quality of life right that's like where else are you gonna go like realistically and so how about you just enjoy your life um, on a daily basis and also really believe in this long-term vision and we'll get that share price back up like if you take a long view of it this is just all a distraction speaking of kind of real versus unreal and booms and busts etc for the past year plus all i've been doing is writing about ai <laughs> what I'm trying to do at the moment is trying to parse what's real from what isn't. And this feels different from, say, crypto, which I still don't quite oh, yeah. understand. Whereas AI, just like there's, you can use it and it works. And when it works well, it's like, oh my God, that's mind blowing. It's just, it's much more obvious and much more applicable to any number of things. But how do you think about AI, both broadly what's happening in the market? I'm sure you've seen this movie before. And also if it has any impact on what, what you're trying to do. Well, I think that actually, so if we talk, think about like this, like what makes a technology disruptive and the d- disruption cycle, I think that people over-focus on the technology itself. And I think what makes a technology disruptive is if it allows for better unit economics of acquisition, which I know is a boring take on it. But if you think it's like, okay, you went from, you know, IBM comes out with computers and like, we're going to sell six of these, one to each nuclear power. And they sell basically <laughs> through the UN. Um, and then someone comes out with basically like the uh, mainframe. And it's like, oh, yeah. now we can actually sell to the Fortune 500. We can sell 500 of these. Then the mini computer comes out. It's like, now we can sell that. Then we can regional sales to kind of go out and yeah. sell those mini computers. And the PC comes out. And like, no one does regional sales anymore. Now it's all about, you know, retail sales. Um, and then SaaS comes out. And it's not, then, then it's like mail order. Then it's basically like online delivery. 
Um, and then each time you're getting a larger adjustable market at a lower cost. Um, so the technology opened up a bigger market at a lower cost. Yeah. Um, and then mobile is like, now it's in your pocket. And so like that creates new use cases and, and all this kind of stuff. And nothing's really happened since mobile because none yeah. of the technologies that come out since have expanded the market size at a lower cost. Like crypto, what? No, you can't acquire yeah. a new customer through crypto. It's actually objectively bad in every single way. Everything said about crypto is just a, a, a easily provable lie. And so I'd say, <laughs> uh, I think like that's, so like whatever. So it's not about crypto or uh, blockchain or any of that bullshit. Um, I think AI is interesting because it, to your point, it solves real problems. So not every technology that's valuable is disruptive. I think it's the, the, it's the market expansion which makes it disruptive, not the technology itself. And I think AI is interesting, I think, for how commoditized it's already become. Within the first couple of years, it's like, oh, yeah, super intelligent AI, whatever. There's like 10 different providers. They're all yeah. super intelligent. Some are slightly more super intelligent than others, but like, whatever. Um, and so it's basically like, wow, okay, that happened fast. And so now Sentience is basically a service that you can just get in. Or, you know, you know there's a bunch of open source options. It's running yourself for free, whatever. It's also fine. And so I think that the technology is absolutely amazing, but it's surprising how we have not monetized super intelligence quite yet. You'd think it would be obvious. There's yeah. a million ways to do it, but it's basically, it's like, okay, super intelligence in a bottle. It's like that you can talk to it and it tells you basically the Oracle of everything it knows. Like once that's out there, you can't like, it's not differentiated anymore. Yeah. And so I think the differentiation is going to become from connecting the super intelligence to real to the real world. Like for now, at least people still have all the money. The robots don't for now. And so I think actually it's the connection between super intelligence and people to accomplish things in the real world. That's where things get interesting. The super intelligence, it's kind of just like, you know, wow, you fit a trillion transistors into a chip. That's really impressive. Customer doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, it's like, how do you, what is the service you're delivering? How you deliver it doesn't actually matter. It's the service itself. And so anyway, I'd say the, I think the, the innovation for AI is going to be how you connect it to other services. And I think that's where the interesting stuff's going to be. Does it change the world for you? Because you, every, every deck you see about AI is like, oh, it's going to revolutionize drug discovery. It's going to revolutionize money. It's going to revolutionize mm -hmm. climate tech. It's going to, it's going to revolutionize everything. But the other thing I found I have found interesting, and this I don't think necessarily applies to you, but like if you go back a year, OpenAI announced this big thing. They're like, Morgan Stanley is our launch partner. We're going to create a custom bot for them that is fed with all of our intelligence, all of our research notes, all of our investment strategy for like the last century. And then you can have that intelligence on tap. And then I talked to Morgan Stanley and they're like, yeah, it took us nine months to implement 20,000 pieces of feedback. It was really complicated to do. And this has nothing to do with anything we do that is regulated because we can't explain how this thing works. Um, <laughs> and so like, they're like, now every all our wealth advisors are using this as a kind of almost like an investment co-pilot, an advice co-pilot. But it wasn't like, presto changeo, here you go, press a button and it's on. It was much more complicated and yeah. I just thought it was an interesting example of like, there's a lot of hand waving, but it just feels like when you're actually getting down to integrating this and using it, it's just far harder. So I think it will be game changing in the sense that, I mean, it's like the singularity is here and we're like, we're living on a daily basis, which is wild. And I think it will get down to like, if you imagine your toothbrush is a super intelligent toothbrush, like what is that? Like, like every single object is going to be that, which is wild. Um, and so what does that look like? I don't know. It's hard to predict. But I think that 
one of the challenges, and this is maybe a bit more sort of cerebral or academic or whatever, is that by and large, I don't think humanity has any real problems in the sense that a problem that we don't know how to solve, that we lack the resources to solve. But we have a huge range of invented problems that just come down to miscommunication, distrust, and things like this. And also just like a desire to differentiate. It's like, you, if I want to be on top, someone else has to be on bottom. And so I think everything from like climate change, you know, war, hunger, famine, like all these things are atrocious with incredible devastating consequences upon billions of people. And they're also incredibly avoidable. They were yeah. predict not just predictable, but generally predicted so far in advance with solutions at the ready that could solve them. And we have, as a society, has chosen not to solve them because we actually prefer this world, which is a wild thing to say. But like, we prefer the culture wars the, to just actually, you know, making a good economy. And uh, people vote against their economic interests all the time. And so I think a challenge is going back to like, well, so what, what does AI do? Like, we don't, we don't need AI to solve climate. We don't need AI to invest money or to make planes or whatever it is. We know how to do that. We need AI to figure out why the fuck we can't just get our shit together as a, as a society, as a people. Like, why do we fight each other over nothing for no reason at extraordinary expense and distraction to everyone? That's where I think the real opportunity is at and the real problem that I want AI to solve. I think it's cool to get like, you know, drug discovery and all that as well. Like, I think that's definitely going to help. Yeah. But the real opportunity is getting us to sort of just talk better to each other. I don't know if AI can do that. <laughs> I think it can. I mean, I think it, I, I think it can actually, because um, what else has the ability to do do a patient, methodical conversation with eight billion people simultaneously? That's it. We live in hope. We live in yeah, hope. Yeah, well, I'm, that's my hope. So I, I'm still very optimistic about an AI future. Um, you know, I welcome our robot overlords, but I'd say it's you know it's scary. It's 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 disconcerting, and I think. There's a million consequences that have come out of it in terms of hyper concentration of wealth and all sorts of stuff. Like, you know, whoever controls the eyes is like really powerful. I think we're going to need like universal healthcare and probably things like um, universal basic income and probably a lot of things. Like when you have huge swaths of people that are just not competitive in the market anymore, what do you do about that? So yeah, it's it's a wild time, but the real problems are not technology problems. They're society problems. Yeah, like our our AIs don't need to be more super intelligent than they already are. Like that, they're already good enough. Yeah. And they're getting better, sure. But that's not the, that's not solving the, the harder problem. The harder problem is the people problem. Um, well, look, it's always fantastic to catch up. I wish you luck uh, navigating the choppy seas of the uh, public markets. It <laughs> seems like it's just kind of pretty crazy to do. But thank you for taking the time. As always, it's, it's, a, it's great, to, great to chat. Great. Well, let's catch up in another four years. For sure. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank David for taking the time coming back on. Thank you guys for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors. I'll be writing about a few different things this week in the paper. I'm going to keep it a secret for now, but it's fun. Trust me, you should check it out. I can also be found on Twitter at Danny Fortson. All of my stuff is on thetimes.co.uk, so do check that out as well. And that is it. So thank you again, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.